Hello and welcome to another edition of Truth and Rhythm, brought to you by FunkinStuff.net. This is the interview show that gets deep into the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove. I'm your host, Scott Goldfein, musicologist and author of Everything is on the One, The First Guide to Funk. My guest today is a man who got his start as a protege of fellow Cincinnatian Bootsy Collins and has gone on to become one of the baddest funk bass players of his generation, otherwise known as Freak Bass. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, good night, depending on what part of the country or the world you're watching this from. <laughs> there you go, cover all the bases. How are you doing today, Freak? That's right. I'm doing great. I'm doing good. I'm, uh, I'm uh, just got back. I was, I was in Florida for a couple of days, back, back here in Cincinnati, Ohio, the funky town of Cincinnati. And um, very honored to uh, to be on your show today. So thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. The pleasure is all mine. Very grateful for you joining us today. So um, let's dig right in. Uh, let's start sort of uh, from the beginning. You know, uh, where did you grow up? Uh, what was uh, your childhood like? Uh, and when did you first first get into music? How did that come to be? Um. Well, I grew up in Cincinnati, Ohio, which is where I still live today. Um, and um, started off, uh, originally I started off as a drummer. When I was probably six or seven years old, you know, I was banging stuff all around the house. My parents got me a little mini drum set, a little snare drum, which I used to just take that snare drum and, you know, just put on uh, albums and just play along with them as long, you know, as, as many hours as I could. And... Um, a few years later, I remember I was in my neighborhood. Uh, you know, Cincinnati's always had this huge funk history here. I'm sure a lot of your 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 viewers know about that. Um, and um, so I, I was in in my neighborhood. A guy was walking down the street with a big boombox, one of the old schools like boombox, like '80s looking boomboxes. And um, and I remember hearing "More Bounce to the Ounce" by Zap coming out of it. And I mean, I literally that memory and that 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 audio memory definitely I remember that like that like it was yesterday I would never ever forget it and I was just I was you know as I was playing drums I was playing a little bit of guitar and two as well and uh when I heard that like the bass coming out of it I was like that's the instrument I want to play I didn't really know I mean I knew what a bass was but I didn't know exactly what was creating all those sounds exactly and not long after that this is probably about you know fourth, fifth grade, not long after that, at fifth or sixth grade, um, there was a music school that came down. There's a, a music college in Northern Ohio called Oberlin Music College. Uh, it's a really good music school. And uh, their jazz band came down to Cincinnati. They were kind of touring around uh, schools around the area in Southern Ohio. And um, uh, they just happened to sit me for, they had, they had a, like an assembly and uh, they happened to sit me in front of the bass player. I was like literally as close as I am to you right now. And, um, uh, I remember he had an SG bass, which, you know, was really like that Jack Bruce looking bass. And I, and I saw it and I was like, I was literally, I was like mesmerized by the sounds that were coming out of it and just, just the, 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 the thickness of it. The thing about guitar, um, you know, I like playing guitar, but even at that younger age, even when I was still a little kid, I was a pretty, pretty tiny dude at that point. But I always, guitar always felt like, um, besides the, the tone, me being uh, attracted to the tones that came out of the bass, also just the physical aspect of the bass is what really attracted me to it, like the thickness of it, the thickness of the strings. Like guitar always felt like too like delicate. Like if I like, you know, I would break a string too easy or I would like, if I pulled the neck back, I'd break the neck or something like that, which of course would never happen. But 
um, the bass, I just loved like the thickening thickness and the chunkiness of it and the, the chunkiness of the sound that came out of it. And me already being a drummer, like, you know, you know, even today, a lot of times that people ask me, you know, when I'm talking about my bass playing, I always call myself a drummer that the, um, dr a drummer that plays notes. And that's kind of the way I kind of create music, too. I think it was like a beat first and then add uh, the notes to the beat. And so those all were I didn't know what was really going on, you know, like why I was attracted to all these things. But I think the aspect of the rhythm, rhythmic aspect of it, the, to the those low subsonic tones coming out of it. Um, and then with that in the combination of hearing, you know, not long before that, you know, more bounce to the ounce by Zap. Um, that's kind of what drew me to the whole thing. So, yeah. So, long story short, I ended up, you know, obviously getting a bass. I, you know, talked my parents into like, you know, I originally I had a guitar and I took a couple of the strings off. Um, it was an old like kind of beater guitar, like you know, fifty dollar or seventy five dollar electric guitar. And so I tried to make my guitar like a bass. Finally, my parents um, got me a bass for Christmas. Um, I think it was sixth or seventh grade. And um, so I started playing like crazy um, the summer of eighth grade, between eighth grade, right before I went into high school. Um, I worked at, a, I wanted a better, I wanted to kind of upgrade my bass. So I wanted a good bass. So I worked at a music store all summer. And every, about once a week, this guy came in there. And uh, it was the first time he sat down and he started thumping and popping on the bass. And I was like, whoa, what is that? Like, I was like, I wanted to learn how to do that because I didn't even know about that technique. And so he was a cool enough dude. He kind of could see how like mesmerized by I was by his playing. So he would come in there and he'd like, you know, go grab a bass off the wall. So I'd sit down with him and he would kind of show me just something real simple, little lick. And then I would try to mimic it. And then I would work on that lick all week long. It was almost like he was giving me lessons, but he was just kind of uh, just a person that came in the store. And um, then we went on like that and um, for a while. And then he started kind of telling me to different artists to check out. Like he said, you know, go get some cameo CDs and uh, like the cameo stuff he said was really good because, you know, when you're first starting out, you know, a lot of times, like, especially on like more rock mixes, the bass is a little more buried in the mix, but like where cameo stuff, they were pretty simple, two or three, four note lines, but really loud and real rep uh, repetitious too. So I started learning that stuff. At that time I was I was getting started getting into like the Dr. Dre and Snoop Dogg stuff too as well. Um, which was great because, you know, hip hop, it's a lot of, you know, the repetitious lines. Little, and then, of course, those were, most of them were samples of P-Funk stuff. And, um, you know, and then there's a funny little story. That same guy, uh, as, as I kind of got better at thumping and popping and stuff, he said, he said, OK, now you got to go check out this guy named Larry Graham. You know, he said, Larry Graham, he's the guy that invented the whole thump and popping thing. So you got to check him out. So I was always like searching around for Larry Graham stuff. Couldn't find it. I remember being in the car with my mom one day. And uh, they, uh, we used to listen to this oldie station here in Cincinnati called WCIN. It was like an oldies R&B station. And they're like, next up, Mr. Larry Graham. And I'm like, oh, this is awesome. This is the guy I've been hearing about. You know, turn the car up. I was so excited. Well, Larry's biggest hit <laughs> is a song called One in a Million You, right? Yeah. So I turn it on and I'm like, okay, what is this? And then all of a sudden, you know, it's Larry, you know, one in a million. I'm like, I'm like, what 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 am I missing here? So I'm like trying to like is there like so, is it like a fine wine thing where I've just got to get you know I'm not hearing what I'm supposed to be hearing. So I told the guy the story. He laughed. It was a funny story. But then about a week or so later, then I finally heard Earthquake by Graham Central Station, and I, and of course that just totally changed my life when I heard that song. So 
that's kind of the long story short, you know, I'm sure we'll go into it later in the interview about how I met Bootsy and stuff like that. But that's kind of like my early years in terms of getting started on, on bass, being a funk bass player specifically. Well, that's fantastic. You know, the Larry Cramp thing, I mean, I was, I was a big fan before then. Earthquake was one of my favorite uh, jams by him. But yeah, well, one in a million, I was just like, oh my gosh. Um, you know, good for him that he scored big, but that's, that's a funny story. Yeah. So, um, if you could, uh, Freak, take me through, uh, you know, sort of what happened shortly before you encountered Bootsy. You uh -huh. know, were you were you gigging? Were you playing live? What kind of shows were you doing? Were you doing any studio work? And then walk me through the process of actually meeting him and how that happened. Sure, sure. So right, at, we're not long after high school. Um, uh, uh, we started. My, my friend of mine, uh, uh, Chris Donnelly, who's a musician. Him and I grew up together. Him and I actually host a radio show now, actually called Funky Fridays with Freak Bass every week, on a radio station here in Cincinnati. Um, and um, but uh, we we put together a funk group called Shag, which was like a it was like kind of a, that was the first group I really started really touring with and stuff. But I started kind of getting my name out there, played gigs around Cincinnati, did a little studio work here and there. So people are starting to know my name and kind of know, know who I was. So not long after that, um, uh, a gentleman who I'm, again, I'm sure a lot of your, your, your viewers know who he is, Mr. Gary Mudbone Cooper. Um, uh, I guess had heard about me a little bit and uh, asked if I wanted to come play on some demo work or some songs he was doing. Now, uh, for those that don't know, Gary, uh, Mudbone, who as well as doing, you know, being an original member of Boosie's Rubber Band and obviously on, a, you know, a ton of the Parliament Funkadelic uh, hits, obviously still touring with George Clinton today as we speak. Um, he um, also uh, was in a band uh, called Sly Fox, which had, which had a number one pop single called Let's Go All The Way. And a song that he wrote, it was, a, it was kind of a brainchild of his in the later 80s. And um, this is like probably we're talking about right now, time period now, now mid to late 90s. And he was um, wanting to put together a um, uh, reform that band. Basically, they were talking about re like re getting together again. So he was having me come in and, and play bass on some of the demos they were doing, some of the Sly Fox stuff. So we started connecting. I didn't even know Muddy was involved with any of the P-Funk or Bootsy stuff yet at all yet. I just knew him from the Sly Fox because that's kind of the, the circumstances I met him under. And um, so I would start going over to his house and hanging out. And then he started playing me these old videos. And I was like, wait a minute, you play with Bootsy, you know? And I was like, what's going on here? You know, Bootsy in Cincinnati, he's, you know, being here from this town, he's kind of an icon in this town, always has been. And like, I remember probably being three or four years old, you know, going to like a, a CD store, record store, and, you know, seeing this huge cardboard cutout lifetime, you know, Bootsy, you know, hands on his hips, looking like freaking Superman. And that that's another one of those images that always stuck, you know, you just get that image burning. I think, the, I think that was from the One Giveth album, maybe. Yeah, that's probably the one. Yep, that's exactly yeah. the, probably the one. Yep, yeah, with the, with the crown and all that kind of stuff on. Yeah. yeah. That's probably what it was. And, um, uh, but, so anyway, so getting back to Muddy. So yeah, so so Muddy and I, you know, got to be got to be really good friends. And then um, he kind of started, you know, really turning me on to the funk, playing me some really just amazing. Like he would play me like rehearsals of like Bootsy's, you know, them, them rehearsing and like really like, you know, listen to what you know Catfish is doing on the guitar there, or like how we're you know you know how we're, we're what we're doing to the screw to kind of like bring the bring the, bring the rhythm of it back and everything. And it really it was you know it was a bit school for me. It was like you know going to like you know funk college. And um, 
uh, a few months later, um, he said, he asked me, he said, hey, I'm getting ready to do, there's a label over in Japan called P-Vine Records, which is like a funk and soul label over there. He said, uh, they're doing a Jimi Hendrix tribute record, and it's not like cover songs, but it's um, so original songs written about Jimi Hendrix from different artists, like Earth, Wind & Fire were doing a track, Ohio Players, and uh, so Mudbone, along with uh, Michael Hampton, Kid Funkadelic, we're doing a track together it's called Father Forgive Him, I believe is the name of the track. You can actually find it at the funk store. It still, still shows up there, but I'd like to play bass on the track. And I was like, well, yeah, of course. And um, I said, well, cool. He said, well, cool. He said, well, uh, I'll pick up Saturday. Um, and I said, well, we're recording it. And he's like, he's like, oh, well, Boosie's going to produce and engineer it. So just like off the cuff, I'm like, oh, okay. You know, like, and I did that almost like the cartoon thing, like your head spins around for a second. And, uh, you know, it was any big deal to him, but it was like, whoa. So, so I'm like, I'm thinking, wait, so we're going to Bootsy's house to do this. And, you know, and, and, and but I didn't want to seem like, you know, like, like I'm too uncool. So I was just going to kind of roll with it. I'm like, all right, that's cool. Sounds great. So we, uh, that Saturday, that following Saturday, we go to, um, to Boots studio, which is also where his house was at. And, um, you know, again it was just one of those those memories etched in time for me you know i remember him opening the studio door he had a big studio in the back and there he was you know standing he looked like he was probably 10 feet tall um and with a you know big smile on his face like you expect really really great guy incredible guy so uh we recorded the track um it went great boots he was engineering it and then you know he had all a bunch of effects around and stuff like that so i just started plugging into everything that i could get my hands on and uh, that's kind of where I kind of got my name to it that, that same same day because he started, um, he's, you know, he, you know, I think it was partially he didn't, he just met me. So he didn't, couldn't remember my name that well. But he's, he's like, man, you got that, that freaky bass thing going with all those, those effects and stuff. And then and then freaky bass became, hey, freak, come over here. Next thing it was like, hey, freak bass, come over here. Then everybody in the studio and the engineers started calling me freak bass. And then so I went from there. So that's kind of how Bootsy gave me uh, Donnie with that name. And it just kind of stuck after that. Yeah. Wow, that is some experience I can only imagine. Um, I had the pleasure of meeting Bootsy back in the <clears throat> early 80s, <clears throat> excuse me, right around the time of the one Gibbeth actually when he was promoting that. And, you know, for oh, me wow. too, I was just blown away um, by the experience. Um, he's uh, so charismatic, but so just down and, and accommodating is how I found him. He really is. I mean, and, and uh, you know, that he's one of these people that, you know what you see is what you get type type people he's really really a special special person and um you know of course i you know feel blessed all the time to have had spent so much time with them and and you know while i was kind of forming all my musical opinions and you know working with him you know fast forward not to cut you off but like you know a couple weeks later after the session i was just talking about um I guess he was kind of digging on what i was doing and my approach to playing and then so he called me up a couple weeks later and said, hey, why don't you come out to the studio and let's like write some songs together. So that's kind of how that my whole relationship with him started. And we would sit there in the studio. You know, I thought I was going to go out there and learn all these really great bass. Like, I'm going to learn all this really cool bass tricks and all this stuff. And, you know, the biggest thing he you know, taught me was really about production in the studio, how to produce records, live records versus studio albums, the different approaches. Um, a lot about the business of music. Um, you know, we would just sit there and talk for hours before we even played anything, you know, like three, four, five hours just sitting in the studio talking about his experiences, you know, what was good for him, what was bad for him. I mean, again, it was just an amazing experience. And he's really from that school, Bootsy, where 
you know, not um, give a man a fish, but whether teach him how to fish, you know, and, and that's kind of what he, you know, set, gave me all the groundwork. You know, I remember him calling me up one day and um, he was, he said, Hey, I got something for you. And I thought, Oh, cool. He's going to give me this cool base or something like that. And he ended up giving me a, um, it was a, um, a SCSI drive for my MPC 2000 drum machine so I could save my samples and, and everything on there, you know, because it was all about production. And that was all he's like, you know, if you want to make a living at music and, and make a career at music, that is, you know, you got to learn how to produce and make records. And uh, that was a huge, you know, that really set me on a, a, a journey. I wasn't even, they wasn't ready for. And, and it was, uh, it took me to a new place that I didn't even know I would, I would be. So it was, I, I'm, I'm going to be, I'm internally thankful for, for everything that I've learned from Bootsy and still, you know, whenever I talk to him now, still, you know, every time I, it's always a learning experience whenever we talk. That was fantastic. You know, I want to talk a little more about your uh, your first uh, work with him and uh, and that. But before we uh, dive too deep into that, I did want to just step back um, for a moment again and talk about the whole, you know, area of Cincinnati and Dayton and, you know, how fertile it's been for funk music. And if you could just yeah. talk to me a little bit about that scene and why do you think, you know, not only is there so much of that music out of there, but the musicians are just, they're so good. And, and it's just a hotbed. What's whats that scene like? Well, it's great. I mean, you know, I think, you know, it probably stems, a big part of it stems back to the King Records days, you know, before my time, you know, which King Records was where, you know, James Brown did all his big hits. And, you know, it was also a, a bluegrass and country label too as well. You know, it's funny because in Cincinnati, the two biggest kind of musical forms out of here are obviously funk and then also bluegrass is huge here too as well. Now it's funny because bluegrass, you know, you think, wow, that sounds so that's so different from funk, but in a lot of ways it's really not. It's very rhythmic oriented music too, all based on rhythm, just like funk is too. And I, you know, I, I wonder, you know, the fact that Cincinnati is, Cincinnati is almost a twin city. There's Cincinnati, then there's Covington and Newark. We sit on a river and we're almost like a twin city. It's the same media market, everything. So you've got like kind of urban Cincinnati butted up against more Southern and rural Kentucky. And that's this kind of, you know, hodgepodge of different kind of cultures all kind of coming, coming together. And, um, you know, Cincinnati is, you know, this is where the uh, Underground Railroad, you know, um, this is the gateway to the north during the civil war um you know we have the freedom center here and for that purpose too as well so um there's always been um you know it's kind of funny because you think about the cities that are kind of typically known as like a lot of your big funk cities whether it be cincinnati or detroit or minneapolis or new orleans there's always this um yeah the if you go into the, the history of everything there's there's always some historical reference um with um, definitely, you know, mixed cultures and uh, as well too, as well. So, um, but yeah, I think Cincinnati in terms of a musician thing, I mean, I, let me say this, like to me, Cincinnati and Dayton and, you know, Ohio definitely has a very distinct funk sound. And, um, you know, New York has a kind of funk sound, you know, West Coast, you know, whether it be the San Francisco Sly and the Family Stone stuff has its own funk sound, Detroit, et cetera. The thing about Cincinnati, I think, I think the fact that we, we weren't one of the big cities like in LA or New York City or something like that, we always had to scream a little louder for people to notice us a little bit. And I think that comes through the music. I mean, you think about whether it be Zap or you think about the Ohio Players or Slave or, you know, it's like the, the music's like, 
<clears throat> I mean, the, you know, the one like, okay, we're going to play the one, but we're going to play it so hard that you can't help but notice it, you know? So like, you know, we're like that little kid in the back, like kind of jumping up, like, look at me, look at me. And I think that, that kind of, I think that's the reason why the funk out of here, out of this area of the country, it's very, you know, because you can, you know, whether, again, whether it be Ohio players, Zap, I mean, uh, P-Funk, or not P-Funk, but Bootsy, uh, Midnight Star from the 80s too as well. Um, they all, the music's all different, but it has kind of that common quality about, there's definitely, it's way, very much in, the, in your face. It's not so much about being subtle, like where, like say Hipster New York or like a kind of LA type thing where we'll put some more subtlety and we're definitely like, right in your face about stuff you know what i mean so that's a big part of it i think here too as well and i think the musicians kind of go to that too as well well you know um growing up actually the ohio players were my first favorite band and um you know of course i knew bootsy was from that area uh, and by extension sure. roger and zap but uh, i really didn't realize being a fan that also slave and son you know, yep. and so many of these other great bands were all from that area until much later. So I'm glad that the area is finally getting some of the credit it deserves. Well, you know, Dayton just opened up the, you know, the Dayton Funk Hall of Fame, which I'm pretty sure you've probably heard about. And that's really, uh, you know, getting really starting to get some attention and they're, they're getting bigger every day. So it's, it's really great. This area is, is getting recognized for that too, as well. Yeah. The other thing I think is great, you know, because of all the, so many funk bands being in this area, it's a lot easier if you're an up and coming funk person like i was or am or whatever you want to look how you want to phrase it um you know like right now when i tour that my keyboard player is razor sharp johnson who you know was original bootsy's rubber band and and uh rico lewis who toured with george clinton for the last 15 years because we're all in the same area like if i was in again if i was in florida or new york or L, you know i razor razor lives 20 minutes from me you know what i mean and so i don't know if i'd have that stable of people to be able to work with you know so that's a nice thing too is that because there's so many it's so generational that there's more of a stable of artists to kind of combine and and, and perform together too as well in this area freak let's talk a little bit about some of the other possible base inspirations you've had besides you know we mentioned larry graham and of course bootsy is, is tremendous influence but yeah, I'm thinking of other P-Funk players like Boogie Mawson, Jeff Bunn, Elijah Curry, and even outside of P-Funk, guys like Flea, Les Claypool, Stanley Clark, um, new guy Mono Neon. What are some of the other uh, guys that have inspired you and that continue to inspire you right now? Yeah, well, Mono's great, too. I mean, he's, you know, he, do, he does the exact same tour circuit that I do, so we bump into each other a lot. He plays with um, – uh, he's been touring with a band called Ghost Note you know right now and uh which is uh that's Sput's band drummer Sput, who's um you know kendrick lamar erica badu uh snarky puppy Snar um Sput and i are both on a label called ropadope records which are out of philadelphia um he's in snarky puppy and, and my last couple albums have been with ropadope and uh so i know mono from um you know two degrees of separation with that whole thing too as well um, um i'm also a big fan in terms of current stuff i'm a big fan of thundercat too as well i really like what he's doing he, um, he's definitely taking the funk to a new level. You know, it's not like just trying to, you know, rehash sounds from a different era, but definitely, you know, taking them to like a new future, which is which is what we need to do with the funk, in my opinion. Um, in terms of uh, other bass players, you know, you mentioned some of the people you mentioned. Obviously, there's a big, big. You know, it's funny because I I get uh, on the road a lot because of the touring circuit I do because I 
do you know combination funk and kind of like the jam band kind of circuit um a lot of people i get a lot of people like oh you must listen to a ton of les claypool and and i love les he's a great guy and and uh we've done some shows together and i really like what he's doing but growing up actually i wasn't that much of a primus fan um um his bass sound for me was like kind of more that kind of mid-rangey kind of thing where i was listening like during during primus era i was like more into like dr dre and snoop dogg and like stuff that the bass was just like you know like this like you know nwa all that stuff where it was like really public enemy where it was like definitely more hip-hop and more subsonic kind of sounding stuff where less would less and flea for that matter too as well and again i'm a big fan of flea too and much respect for him but both less and flea were kind of more from that you know i mean and i don't mean this as a, as any kind of slide at all but definitely their bass sound had more kind of a mid-rangey kind of sound more kind of that that kind of thing and where i was kind of more into kind of more the deep bass kind of sound so growing now now i mean like and actually less is solo stuff i've actually like what he's done in the last few years i actually personally more of a fan of even the primus stuff because i like his the, the, his tone tones and stuff like that too as well um but um you know, I mean, obviously James Jamerson, you know, he's a big obvious, but, you know, not only just some funk stuff, I mean, like, you know, Paul McCartney, huge, huge Paul McCartney. And, and I went through my huge, like every bass player does, my huge Jocko Pistorius phase, you know, where I was like, wanted to be Jocko, you know, just like every, you know, kid growing up wanted to be Michael Jordan. I was, you know, wanted to be Jocko at one point. And, uh, you know, Getty Lee from Rush, I was into some Rush stuff for a while. King Crimson, Tony Levin, I'm a huge Tony Levin fan from the stuff he did with King Crimson and Peter Gabriel and um, even stuff he did with like, you know, John Lennon, you know, he's on a few of his albums too as well. Um, yeah. So, you know, a lot of that, a lot of that stuff too as well. And I'm, and I'm also into real, a lot of, a lot of, you know, electronic dance music, you know, everything, you know, Daft Punk, Pretty Lights, you know, stuff, people that are taking bass and kind of, at, you know, which is kind of what I was saying Thundercats kind of doing with Flying Lotus and stuff, but um, anything that's kind of push it, you know, I always think of like, you know, George Clinton, when he was around, you know, like his contemporaries were like Frank Zappa and David Bowie mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, Sly Stone and stuff like that. If, say, if George Clinton was had started today, you know, he might just as well be influenced by Daft Punk and, and uh, you know, um, you know, bands like that, too, as well, too. So um, uh, another uh, really good album, and I think a lot of your your, your viewers are like, if you're not hip to it, too, is the, the newest um, Childish Gambino album, which is so, so good. I mean, it's not, it's like straight up, like, maggot brain error, almost funkadelic sounding stuff with a modern twist to it. Childish Gambino is a guy named Donald Glover, who's actually an actor, and he's got a music career, too. And um, uh, he's got a new album out, and it's, it's, it's a great, great record, too, as well, so... Yeah, I really like your show. I really like your show, Atlanta, too. I don't know if you've seen that, but that is very Which cool. Which one is it? I'm sorry. Uh, he does a show called it? Atlanta. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. And, you know, he's, he's playing, uh, and I'm a total superhero and Star Wars geek. He's playing um, Lando Calrissian in the the, uh, the Han Solo uh, origin go. story, too, as well. Yeah. Wow. Um, so let's talk a little bit about some of the other, you know, great musicians that you've worked with that viewers would be familiar with. You know, you mentioned Razor, but also Bernie Morrell, Buckethead, Doug Wimbush. Let's talk about yeah. some of those guys and, you know, what your impressions and memories are of some of them. Yeah, well, I mean, all those. I met Buckethead through Bootsy and um, uh, uh, Buckethead kind of met Bootsy. Some, not 
the same circumstances as me, but I mean, like Bootsy kind of did a similar thing with Bucket as he did with me, kind of turned him on to a whole new kind of world. Um, I remember being at Bootsy's once and he actually played me the original demo little tape that Buckethead had sent him. And like, I think it was in the mail too. And then Bootsy just having to listen to it. And it was, you know, Bucket just doing his crazy thing. So Bootsy has this whole kind of family stable of artists that he kind of works with. So he tries to get everybody kind of working together. And that was a really nice thing about working with him as well. Um, yeah, Bernie, I mean, Bernie Worrell, you know, as, as life-changing as working with Bootsy was, Bernie was just every bit of that. Um, Bernie actually stayed at my house once for a week on uh, a couple albums, a few albums, 2008, I think it was, and stayed. And uh, we actually, he was on my previous album where he, I, I, he'd uh, come on and played on played keyboards on a song that, I, that was kind of close to being done where but on this next album we were actually in the studio writing from the beginning together so i got to kind of see how his mind worked and um bernie and i also toured in a group i, I do a side project called headtronics too which is um it's myself and dj logic and um it's usually a guy named steve Mollis, who's a keyboard player steve was on tour with his own group called particle at the time we had a couple week tour booked and so we asked bernie to go out and do it so we we toured together for a couple weeks together too as headtronics um bernie was you know as we were asking about bass players a little while ago uh you know who influenced me bernie's probably one of my biggest influences as a bass player even that i know i'm not a bass like there's a bass magazine out of england called bass guitar magazine asking top five influential bass players for an article and bernie was one of them and i said yeah i know he's not a bass player but he might as well be you know and and all his all the stuff that he played i would mimic on on bass all the time too as well not just in terms of notes but also just sonically tones that he would create with his move so he's you know i don't know if you ever got a chance to meet bernie or, or not but he is a was a was a very incredibly special human being and there's a the word genius gets thrown around pretty loosely sometimes um but he was truly truly a genius he could take like two or three notes something that you would think was like the most common thing in the world and make it sound new and fresh and funky. It was just incredible. And I feel so incredibly lucky and blessed to be working with him. And he, and he was just a great human being too. I mean, you know, everybody that we've, we've talked about so far, whether even Buckethead, but Buckethead is a really shy guy, but he's really, really great dude too as well. Um, one person um, I've been lucky enough to work with too as well is a guy named Mike Gordon from the band Fish too as well. He was on a couple of my albums and we've become really good friends. And same thing, I mean, as, as mega and huge as Fish is, um, you know, you would never know it when you're hanging out with them because he's just a good guy. And it's, just, it's all about the music. And that's what's all these people, it's all, usually always about the music. And it's not the fact that there is the notoriety that they have is not just coincidence. I mean, there's so much talent there to, to and it's just to be, be around that is, is always, I feel very lucky to do that. You mentioned uh, Hedtronics. Um, I love that stuff, um, but I've only heard live. Did you guys ever record anything? No, we still have not yet. And we we just did a gig, gig last month in Vermont too, as well. And we've always talked about that. We've come close. It's just the thing about Hedtronics that's so tough is that what makes it work is the what makes it work and special is also what kind of works against it. What makes it work is that you've got people that that all have their own bands and all have their own kind of fan base and all that kind of stuff. Uh, myself, Logic, and Steve, or, or Bernie in that case. And um, because of that, 
getting us to, together is really tough because we're all touring so much on our own with our own projects. So, you know, setting a time, a lot of time in the studio is always tough. Now, the thing about Hedtronics that also is pretty wild is that when we do a show, we don't, no one knows the, the show, the two hour show or whatever we do is 100% improvised. We don't, we don't rehearse. We just show up, meet each other in a city and do a whatever tour. And every, you know, Logic starts his beats on, on with his DJ stuff. I start a bass line and whether it be Bernie or Steve or whoever's playing keyboards, um, um, just starts a melody on top and we just kind of start feeding, feeding off of each other. So that's the thing too. I think a lot of that's the reason why we haven't done the studio work yet so much is because it's, you know, we've always been kind of scratching our heads about how we capture that on album because we don't really have songs. They're all just one big continuous flow jam. So I'm sure we'll get there. And, you know, Hedtronics is, an, what's what's nice about it is, you know, Hedtronics is, which is weird to think about. We Our first show was in 2010, which is almost, you know, seven years ago, which is weird that it's, um, it's been that long. And we still play, you know, we may play five times a year. We may play 20 times a year, but it's like everybody kind of gets together. Somebody will come up and offer us a show and we'll go out and do some shows together. So it's, it's a kind of a ever evolving um, uh, band. Freak, I'd like you to talk about, you know, what makes funk music so unique and special? Um, you know, what qualities do you see it having that just, you know, get deep within uh, the listener and um you know why do you think overall is it more sort of have more more wide acceptance and acclaim and, and recognition than it does hmm. i think part of the longevity is you know funk's never broken huge i mean i guess you know the last couple of years you could say maybe with uptown funk by bruno mars that was a pretty big hit but Generally, it's always kind of almost like cult status, you know, and even back when it was, you know, back when it was huge, hugely popular back in the 70s. And, uh, you know, like, you know, in like the late 90s, there was the big, you know, the big swing craze, everybody's in a swing, and then there's the big ska craze. And then, you know, and all these bands are trying to sound like ska bands, or all these <clears throat> bands are trying to sound like swing bands, or funk is, it's like always, you know, it's about, you know, it's a feel and an attitude. It's not so much you know, you know, like play this note or play that note and you'll sound like a funk band. It's more about feel and groove and everything. And, um, you know, it's, it's hard to really put a word on what it really is, but, um, you know, it's like one of those things, you know, when you hear it, but it's, it's hard to really kind of describe what it is. But I think the fact that it also, it kind of takes everything in society, whether it be musical things or actually, you know, lyrical things, and puts it under the microscope and kind of blows it up 10 times as big. I mean, George was great at that, obviously, and still is to where taking, you know, and it's almost, you know, like whatever happens to be happening in society at that time, bring it up and making it really big. I remember we, we, I did an interview with George myself for my radio show, and he said, you know, back before when they first started, you know, doing like hand claps on record, they would take those claps and just in the studio and just turn them up louder than anybody would ever thought about doing that. And then he said, you know, after that, you started noticing all the new drum machines that came out, all the hand claps had to be a lot louder because they created this whole new kind of sound with hand claps. Um, that kind of thing, just really pushing the limits on stuff. And I think that's one of the things about funk is this always kind of pushes the limits of everything where it is and and there's you know yeah there are certain tonal qualities to it and certain harmonic things you can do that are funky but 
it's again it's all about feel and groove and stuff like that and it's it's um you know there's a it's it's not something you can teach in school too much it's something you definitely have to live just seems that they've always wanted to try to you know lump it into r&b or lump it into here there and never right. really fully give it its due and and you know to me it's always been just such a unique i mean like you said you know it when you hear it right and there's definitely and i think that what you, you mentioned about the r&b thing a lot of the bands that like you know they might say funk bands that have more than r&b they b thing that they kind of miss the rock i mean there's a big rock element to funk too as well as we, as we know and and it's just like that heaviness of it you know the, to to where a lot of, I mean, I've seen some like more R&B players play funk and it sounds different. You know, it sounds like, I mean, it sounds, it still sounds groovy and danceable and all that kind of stuff, but that heaviness of it. I mean, you know, it really, a lot of it all goes back to James Brown with the one, you know, it's like, you just, that one has got to be the most dominant thing, you know, almost that, that's probably the one, you know, drawing line you can pull between all the funk bands that are the real funk bands is, is where how that one's presented and if you you know the one is not an option that's what my manager says all the time you mentioned doug doug wimbish is fun my i just uh, my manager is um a guy named bevis griffin who used to just manage living color too and, and you know with doug and stuff like that and you know he's always uh, uh saying you know and catchphrase the one is not an option you know the, if you the one's got to be there. That's that's not something you even have to even talk about. If you if you've got the one down, all the rest will kind of work itself where it needs to go. So, freak, talk to me what it was like. You know, I know uh, Bootsy was in there and a mentor, and uh, he's like produced. Uh, I think might have been your first three records or something like that. Um, what was it like, sort of breaking out independent of Bootsy and kind of you know flying on your own? And and was that always the plan, or what was that like? Yeah, totally. Well, like I mentioned earlier in our conversation, you know, Bootsy was never out, out, I don't think, to make me like Bootsy number two or anything like that at all. He was trying to help me to pave, pave my own, you know, my own way too as well. But, you know, it was, it was tough. I mean, to be honest with you, you know, when I first, the first, you know, when I first started getting out of there, you know, I mean, he's, you know, Bootsy has a big shadow, you know what I mean? He's, he's, you know, obviously a very like a charismatic and larger than life personality. And, you know, here comes this other guy who's, you know, dresses a little funny, too, and plays a little flashy bass, too, as well. Also from Cincinnati as well. So that was, um, that was um, you know, at first, I wouldn't say it was difficult because it wasn't like I was consciously trying to do something different from, from Bootsy or whatever. I was just trying to be me. Um, but I think, you know, the biggest way with that helping with that is just really touring a lot. I mean, I've, I've toured... A, ton over the last you know eight to ten years with the course of touring and playing more you kind of start you know people start seeing you for you and of course there's going to be influences of what you do everybody has that but um you know just like all the influences that Bootsy pulled in you know whether playing from playing with James Brown to George or whatever and then that became kind of you know Bootsy was kind of a culmination of you know a lot of the tightness of James Brown but all the looseness and craziness of George um, you know, with a lot of my experience from playing with Bootsy and a lot of that stuff I learned from him, but also playing in different musical environments with other people too as well, I'm, you know, going to sound like me. And, and, and that's been, you know, hopefully getting more and more like that over the years, um, as well as, as being so concentrated on my bass playing and, and myself as a musician. One thing I've always taken really seriously is songwriting too, the craft of songwriting. And, and uh, 
you know, anybody that I'm a big admirer of, it's not that they're just necessarily great at whatever their particular instrument or, or voice is. It's also they're a great songwriter too as well. And so that's one thing that I've always tried to always try to have keep evolving too as well. And, and um, I think that's kind of hopefully helped me develop my sound too as well. I, I definitely feel, you know, the last few years, I definitely feel more comfortable in my skin than I ever have just because I feel like I've kind of, you know, whether you love or hate what I do, it's definitely kind of, when it sounds like freak bass, you know. That just leads me into what I want to uh, expand a little more. And, and that's, you know, I noticed over time, um, you know, you brought in more diverse elements to uh, the freak bass uh, sound and, and to what you do, you know, whether it's new wave, jazz, even sort of uh, a little more pop. You know, could you talk to that, you know, how how interested are you being in commercial versus non-commercial and, and let's talk to those influences. Sure, sure. Well, I mean, I'm, you know, guilty as charged. I love pop music, you know, I know pop me, a lot of people think that's a bad, bad word, but you know, I mean, the Beatles were pop music to me, you know, Bootsy, a lot of Bootsy stuff was pop music to me. Sly and the Family Stone, that was pop music, you know, it was funk pop music, but it was still pop music, you know, all the George Clinton. So, you know, writing a hit song, you know, I used to, th like, when I was, uh, you know, a kid, I was like, right, I don't want to write a hit song, man, that's lame, you know what I mean? Like, I don't, I don't like all that stuff that's on the radio, but try doing it. It ain't easy, you know what I mean? And it's, and it's, and it's, it's exciting to try to, like, you know, like, literally, I don't sit down in the studio and say, hey, I'm going to write a hit song today. That's, I don't mean that at all. I don't ever take that approach i write what i feel obviously but but you know writing you know i was talking about bernie earlier about you know writing two or three you know like one of his most famous licks is um you know from the tom tom club's genius of love that now think how many songs that songs you know whether it be mariah carey or there's a million people that have sampled that little two or three note that's what i'm talking about writing like a pop or hit song like song or lick it's like something that you know or papa was a rolling stone you know uh, by james you know james james on the temptation three notes a baseline i you know i love all the fancy stuff and right now you know and i can you know do that all night long but like to be able to like take two or three or four notes that you could play you know over and over again and, and make it almost hypnotic i mean that's where the magic happens so um you know so you know that's what i mean by like pop music i mean that does kind of stuff you know uh the beatles you know um day tripper like writing a lick like day tripper or something like that mm -hmm. um uh so you know I'm, I'm probably unabashedly not a, not a, afraid of that word as much as I used to be too as well. Um, yeah. And then also of course, yeah. I mean, any, anything you grew up listening to, I mentioned earlier, you know, I was a big rush fan growing up as much as I was into funk, you know, I mean, must've played Tom Sawyer 50 times a day on bass for a while. And then, you know, Jocko Pistorius, I was in a huge Jocko fan. So like that stuff comes into your playing too, as well too. And, you know, I think Jocko stuff, the same thing. It's like, as crazy as and many notes as you play on bass it's it, he was still writing hooky bass lines too as well so um that stuff's all going to come and play and bootsy actually told me this once um there's a song off of a record of mine um called do we even belong together it's a song I actually wrote with bernie and uh it was kind of almost had a little bit of a country flavor to it and i remember I was like i don't know if i should put this on the album because it sounds kind of country you know in my mind it's not a country it probably didn't anybody else it didn't and bootsy's like you know freak no matter what you do 
it's going to be funky and it's going to be freak based. So yeah, you're going to, if you, if I sat down right now and said, Hey, I'm going to write a jazz song. Well, it's still probably going to be a funky jazz song. Or if I'm going to, I'm going to write a bluegrass song. Well, it might kind of have some elements of bluegrass, but it's still going to sound like freak bass playing a bluegrass song, a funky bluegrass song, you know? So I'm not so like, if something comes to me musically, I'm not going to like shun it away because it doesn't fit into whatever this genre of, of funk or is. And like going back to our conversation a few minutes ago, I mean, funk that, that, that's, uh, it's more of an attitude. That's a, it's an umbrella. Like you, we talk about the Ohio players a lot, you know, I mean, they could go from playing, um, you know, sweet sticky thing, which is almost like a, you know, a ballad R and B song. That's really funky to, you know, fire which is almost like a rock song or like FOP, which is like a straight up rock song, you know, but they're all, they still sound, whether it's FOP or Sweet Sticky Thing, it still sounds like the Ohio Players, you know, no matter which, how you, how you break it down. All right, so you have some pop influence, but we're not going to hear one in a million from Freak Bass, right? Not yet. No, 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 no <laughs> I'm, not, I'm, not ready, I'm not ready for the wedding song yet, but you know, hey. <laughs> 